If you want to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 966. You can also use your table of contents, 2 Corinthians. Today is the third and uh, third sermon in a trilogy of sermons. It's kind of worked out this way. Uh, on our eternal hope as Christians. Two weeks ago on Easter, remember Easter? It was a long time ago, wasn't it? Two weeks ago at Easter, we looked at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, and we saw that the resurrection of Jesus means that we have a great and eternal hope of eternal life. And if we can keep our eyes focused on that hope and have that eternal perspective, it makes all of our current troubles seem light and momentary in comparison. We have that right perspective focusing on the resurrection. It helps us through all of our troubles here and now. And then last week, we investigated that more, saw in more detail what that eternal hope really was. In chapter 5, we saw uh, the answer to this question, what does happen to Christians when we die? And in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5, we see Paul give three answers, three things that happen to Christians after death. Let me just read that for us, then we'll recap and extend it today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what happens? If you're a Christian, what happens after you die? Well, we saw in the first five verses last week, as Paul talks about our ultimate hope, what happens ultimately is that you will get a new and better body at the resurrection. So one day Jesus will return, and when he does, all Christians will be raised from the dead. You will get a new physical body, and not just a one-for-one replacement, same body you got now, but it's an upgrade. He speaks of our tent, this temporary tent in which we live now, our temporary bodies, will be replaced with a building, permanent, made by God, never dying. Our current set of clothing wearing out, uh, our, current, you know, our current bodies, it wears out and we're burdened. It will be replaced not with the same kind of body, but with a new, permanent, immortal body. That's our ultimate hope, that when Jesus returns, we get new and better bodies. But until then, there's also an immediate hope, and that's in the second section here in verses 6 through 8, where it says your immediate hope is that when you die, you go immediately to be with Jesus in heaven. He says to be present in the body is to be away from Jesus, because Christ is in heaven, but to die is to be away from the body, but at home with the Lord. And Paul says, that's so great that I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So death for the Christian is not a scary prospect. It just means that you get to be with Jesus immediately in heaven, and then at one day, ultimately, Christ will return, and your body will be raised from the dead, and you'll have a new and better body at the resurrection. 
So those are the first two things that Paul mentions. Now, the third one we didn't get to last week, but this is the focus of our time today. The third thing that happens to you as a Christian after you die is that you will be judged by Jesus. You'll be judged by Jesus. One day after you die, you will stand before Jesus and you will be judged for everything you've ever done. If you're a Christian, this is going to happen. Now, we can't cover, there's, there's so much here. Um, so I just remind you that one of the things that we do is if you have questions, I want you to write those questions down. I want you to put them in the box in the back underneath that big question mark. And I'm going to work hard to answer those this week. Or you can come talk to me afterwards and ask your questions. Okay, because there are questions in this. But I'm going to try to answer three questions today. And we'll see how that does for you. First question is, what's going to happen at this judgment? Second question, what is at stake in this judgment? And then third, how should we live now in light of this coming judgment? So what's going to happen? What's going to happen is this. Every thought, every word, and every deed of every Christian will be evaluated by Jesus. Every thought, every word, and every deed of every Christian will be evaluated by Jesus. So first, I want you to see that this is a judgment for every Christian. It would be nice, wouldn't it? This would be a lot easier if we got to verse 10 and all of a sudden Paul switched and started talking about non-Christians, right? Like, so verse 9, he's talking about Christians. He's saying, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all non-Christians must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that they receive what is due them for what they've done in the body. That'd be a little easier, wouldn't it? We'd just say, oh, it's not going to happen to us. It's just for those non-Christians. Not what it says, right? In chapter 5, he's been talking about Christians all along. He's been telling us our hope. What happens after we die? We're going to get resurrected bodies. We're going to be with Jesus. And same we, we are going to stand before the judgment of Christ. So what's going to happen to Christians at this judgment? Every thought, word, and deed will be evaluated by Jesus. Now, where am I getting that? So in verse 10... It says in the second half, each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So that phrase, what he has done in the body, what does that mean? My first thought with that is just to think about your classic good deeds, right? Things done in the body, helping the old lady cross the street kind of stuff. Things that you do in your physical body, tangible works, right? The things that you've done. And, and the Bible speaks of this. So in Matthew 25, for example, Matthew 25 is another passage that speaks of final judgment before Christ. And, and in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks to Christians, and he says this, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And they say, when? When did we do all this? I don't remember. I think I would remember visiting Jesus in prison. <laughs> I don't remember doing that. So Jesus says, no, here, here's the deal. When you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So these are the sort of things that in Matthew 25 we see that, that Jesus is evaluating. He's evaluating what was done in the body. Did you feed the hungry? Did you welcome the stranger? Did you visit the sick? Did you go to the imprisoned? Did you use your body, your energy, your life to love other people or didn't you? Those are the sorts of things Jesus will be evaluating. 
But not just our deeds. It goes deeper than that. Uh, the Bible also tells us that, that God will evaluate the words that we have spoken. Matthew 12, 36. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. People will give account for every careless word they speak. Your words will be evaluated by Jesus. The words that you spoke, did you speak truth or did you spread gossip? Right? Did you use your words to build other people up in love and edification or did you use your words to tear people down in anger and destruction? How did you use your words? But it goes deeper than that even. The Bible says not only will God evaluate our deeds, our physical deeds, our, our words, but also our thoughts. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had written this church more about this judgment. And in 1 Corinthians 4, he said this, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says when, when Jesus comes, he will bring to light the things that were hidden, and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. So at the judgment before Jesus, he sees our hearts. He knows your thoughts, and he will evaluate uh, the hidden stuff that you thought only you knew, right? You were browsing in incognito mode. You didn't think anybody could track that. Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He's not just looking if, if you gave money to help that person. He knows your heart. Did you give money to help the person because you love them and you desired glory to be given to God? Or did you give money to that person because you wanted people to think that you were generous? He evaluates to that level. This is what's going to happen for every one of us someday. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says. We are going to stand before Jesus. So if you're a Christian here today, you will stand before Jesus someday. And everything that you've done in the body, your actions, your words, your thoughts, will all be set before the great judge. And Jesus is going to evaluate it. And he's going to determine whether it was good or bad, whether this was good or bad, and how good it was and how bad it was. And then verse 10 says, based on that, he will give you what is due to you. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. That's going to happen. Is that a scary thought? It's a little scary, isn't it? A little scary. I don't like the idea of uh, the NSA being able to read my emails, let alone someone being able to see my thoughts and all my words and all my deeds and hold them up for evaluation. It seems a little scary, and it seems out of place, in, in fact, in, in, this, in this discussion about good news about life after death, right? Good news, you're going to get raised from the dead. You're going to, when you die, you get to be with Jesus, and then you're going to get judged. Whoa, it just feels like whiplash, right? But, but part of the reason why it feels so scary and like such whiplash is because we don't understand what's at stake. Okay, so let's, let's answer this question. What is at stake in this judgment? First of all, and this is very important, salvation is not at stake. So before we talk about what is at stake, we talk about what's not at stake. Salvation is not 
at stake. When you read something like this, it is very common to think, whoa, is this saying that we get into heaven based on what we do? That, that when I die, God's going to evaluate my life, and He's going to weigh my deeds, my good and bad, and if I have more good than bad, then He's going to let me in, and I'll get what I deserve. But more bad than good, then I'll get what I deserve, and I won't get heaven. Is that what that means? No. It's common to think that because that's how most religions function. Many religions have a basic teaching that after you die, you face some sort of judgment. And in all those religions, the judgment is uh, to determine whether or not you've merited the afterlife. And they often have some picture like that of scales where you take the good deeds and you take the bad deeds, you make them in two piles, and you put them on the scales and you see which one is heavier. And, and if you have more good than bad, then you get into the afterlife. But that is not what Christianity teaches. There are no scales. There is no weighing of your deeds. The scene here in 2 Corinthians 5 is not of Jesus deciding who gets into heaven. That's already been decided. Now, how do I know that? I know that because of the clear teaching of the rest of the Bible. And this is a really good tool. This is kind of a bonus application for you. But as you're reading the Bible, if you're confused by one part, a really good practice is to say, well, let the clear sections of Scripture interpret the unclear. So if you don't know what's going on here in this judgment, if you say, is this mean salvation is by works? You should look at the rest of the Bible and see how it clearly says, no, salvation is not by works. So there's a couple verses, really common ones that you should probably know. John 3.16, what does that say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't get much clearer than that verse. How do you get everlasting life? Do you work for it? Do you earn it with your performance? No. God gave Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, to pay for your sins so that you might be forgiven and accepted by pure grace. And all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you are saved. Romans 6.23, another crystal clear verse, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Romans 6.23 says, If there were scales, we would be condemned. The wages of sin is death. What we have done is sin, and we have earned death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we could go on and on, have a whole sermon about the clear teachings of Scripture, and you know these verses, many of you. The Bible is very clear. Salvation is a free gift. It is given on the basis of the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. If you believe in him and accept that gift, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're adopted, you get heaven, you get salvation, it's all yours. So this judgment clearly cannot be about that. So it must be a different sort of judgment, not a judgment about whether or not you will receive salvation, but in fact, this is a judgment about rewards. It's about the kind and quantity of rewards you will experience and receive in eternal life after you die and you go to be with Jesus. So salvation is not at stake. Your rewards as a Christian are at stake. Now I invite you to turn your Bibles to the previous book, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've run into this a number of times as we've read 2 Corinthians. It helps to have watched the prequel, right? 
If you understand 2 Corinthians, it helps to have read and understood 1 Corinthians because Paul is writing to the same people. He's already explained some of this stuff. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you get a longer explanation of this judgment, and it's very clear when you read this that it's not about salvation. It's about rewards. We're going to look at verses 10 through 15, where Paul is, is defending, again, his apostleship and his work, but it's applicable as well to all of our work, too. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I always think of this as the Christian version of the Three Little Pigs story. Right? What are you building your house with? Are you building it with stuff that's going to last, that's going to stand the test of time, or stuff that's going to be worthless? The picture is that each Christian's life is like a house, and if you're a Christian, you all have the same foundation. The foundation is Jesus. Paul says, I laid the foundation of Christ. So they're saved by grace. They believe the gospel. They're secure in their salvation. The foundation is secure. It's the same for everybody. It's Jesus Christ. But he says each person has the opportunity then to build on that foundation. You can build on the foundation. You can choose to make good choices and to do good things and to build with good, uh, good materials like gold and silver and precious stones. Or you can choose to to make bad choices and to, to waste your life and to build with meaningless, worthless stuff that won't last like wood and straw and hay. And one day we're all going to stand before Jesus and he says it will be revealed in that day, in verse 13, that day, the judgment day. And the fire will burn the houses and it will reveal what kind of life we've lived. The good stuff, the worthwhile stuff won't be burned up in the judgment. It will last but the worthless stuff will be destroyed. And he says in verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, that is, if you've done good, if you've made good choices building on that foundation, you will receive a reward. Verse 15 says, but if anyone's work is burned up, that is, if you did bad things, if you wasted your life pursuing wrong things, you will suffer a loss. That stuff will be burned up, but will you still be saved? Yes, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Okay, so that's the judgment that we're talking about here. Not talking about weighing your good deeds in scales and figuring out were you good enough to get into heaven. That's not 1 Corinthians 3. We're talking about the judgment of the quality of our lives. You've got the foundation of Christ, but what have you built upon it? What have you done with that? If it's good, if all the good you've done, that will last and you will receive a reward for that. But for all the bad you've done, it will be burned up and be meaningless for eternity. Two different kinds of judgment. So if you want another picture to think about the different kinds of judgment, think about the difference between being in a courtroom or being an Olympic figure skater. Okay? Both experience judgment, right? So if you're standing in a courtroom, there's a judge. If you're an Olympic figure skater, there's a judge. 
In both cases, there's judgment going on. There's evaluation of the evidence to try to decide an outcome. But in the courtroom, the stakes are very, very high. The stakes are, are you condemned or innocent? Are you going to be uh, punished or are you going to be set free? In figure skating, the stakes are not nearly that high. You're not going to go to jail for missing your double sow cow or, you know, falling after your toe loop. The judges don't have that authority to, 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 to put you on death row or to, to condemn you for your failure to skate well. What do they do? In their judgment, they're evaluating your performance and they will give you a reward based on that performance. They'll decide, is that a gold medal performance? Is that a silver? Is that a bronze? Is it nothing? That's the kind of judgment that we're talking about. The judgment that Jesus does for Christians is not the judgment of the courtroom. That judgment has already come in. I can tell you the result of that judgment. You're not guilty. Now, sure, you are guilty. I mean, you've done it. I've done it. But because of Christ, the verdict is not guilty. He has taken our punishment. He's given us his righteousness. In the courtroom of God, we are acquitted. There's nothing to fear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the level of rewards is still an open question. And so we must be judged in that sense, and only in that sense. Jesus must evaluate all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our deeds, everything done in the body, good and bad, in order to decide what level of reward we are due. That's what's at stake. Now, even saying that, I assume that some of you are probably still scared. Because you're hearing that and you're saying, I am pretty sure that I have done way more bad than good. And so when Jesus evaluates my life, even if it's just for reward, I'm not going to get anything. And because I've done so much bad, I'm probably going to owe him. But here's the good news about rewards. When Jesus is evaluating our good deeds and our bad deeds, he isn't putting them in two separate piles and then bringing out the scale and weighing them and figuring out if you have more good than bad, then you get a reward. If you have more bad than good, then you have to pay him. That's not how it works. There's no balance. He does divide them into two piles of good and bad, but then he doesn't put them on a scale. He takes the bad pile and he throws it in the garbage. He burns it up. It doesn't count for anything. It doesn't count against you. It doesn't count for you. It's just there. And then he looks at the good pile and he evaluates your rewards based solely on that. Okay, now, now, where am I getting that? I'm getting that from 1 Corinthians 3, where what happens to the bad construction materials? They're not counted against you. God doesn't say he, he, he pulls out the scales and all the gold that you got, you put on one side and all the sticks and straw I put on the other side. There's none of that. The bad stuff is simply burned up. It's worthless. It doesn't help you but it's not a continuing source of condemnation. Think about it this way. Imagine you've got a box of jewelry that you've collected over the course of your life. And you want to finally find out what it's worth, so you take the whole box to a jeweler, jeweler, an experienced, gifted jeweler, and you dump out the whole box on the counter right in front of her. And the jeweler, she, she carefully sifts through the contents of the box and she separates it into good and bad. She says, well, this is, this is just glass. That's worthless. Uh, this, is, this is plastic. That's just aluminum. Oh, this, this is a real ruby. This is, this is fake gold. This is real gold. 
This is cubic zirconia. This is a diamond. And throughout the whole stack, she goes just evaluating, separating into two piles. One pile at the end is then full of all the bad, worthless jewelry, the fake stuff, the junk. The other pile is full of the good jewelry, the solid gold, the real diamonds, the valuable stuff. Now, when she goes to figure out what the whole collection is worth, she doesn't pull out her balance scales and put the junky jewelry on one side and the good jewelry on the other and then, you know, take out good jewelry to, to balance out the bad and then what you have left is this little, you know, one gold earring. No, she, she just doesn't care about the bad pile. She just throws it in the garbage. It's worthless. It's junk. And she looks at the good that remains and she says, for that, I'll give you $10,000. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's what's going to happen at the final judgment for Christians. Your whole life's going to be dumped on the counter in front of Jesus, and he's going to sort through it expertly and evaluating the good from the bad. He's going to look at every thought, every word, every deed, and decide, well, is this good? Is this bad? What's this for? And once he separates out your whole life into the good pile and the bad pile, he's not going to take out a scale and weigh the good against the bad, and if you have more bad than good, you've got to pay him. No. He's going to take the junk, the worthless stuff. It's not going to count for you, but it's not going to count against you. He'll burn it up, throw it away. There's no condemnation left in that. It's already been paid for. And then he'll look at the good, and he'll say, for this, for this, I will give you a reward. That's what the final judgment for the Christian will be like. Your salvation is not at stake, and you don't have to worry that all your bad deeds are going to be held against you. Jesus died for those. It's already paid for. They're just not going to help you. Instead, you will be rewarded based on the good you've done. Let me reiterate, this raises a lot of questions. If you have questions about rewards, I encourage you to write those down. Ask me. Also, um, a couple years ago, I preached a whole sermon on rewards that may have answered some of your, your questions. It was on June 7th, 2015. If you're interested in going back and listening to that, you can find it online. You can ask at the sound booth. They'll get you a copy of that, June 7th, 2015. Let me just stay on target here and sum up the message of verse 10. The message is this. If you're a Christian, after you die, every thought, every word, every deed will be evaluated by Jesus. And all the bad things you've ever done will be tossed aside. You won't be condemned for them, but you won't be helped by them. And you'll be rewarded by God for all eternity based on the quantity and the quality of the good that you have done in this life. That's what verse 10 teaches. And if that's true, it leads to the final question, which is how should we live now in light of the coming judgment? And the answer is helpfully provided for us in verse 9. Paul says, so, whether we are at home or away, that is, whether we're living or dead, we make it our aim to please Him. That's how you live in light of the coming judgment, the fact that Christ will reward you for everything good that you've done. You make it your aim to please Him. You make pleasing God the main goal of your life. If you really believe that this judgment is going to happen, then the inevitable result is that you make pleasing God the, the goal of your life. And that's, you see how the verses are connected? It's important to pay attention to these connecting words. Right? Verse 10 begins with the word for. 
which means it's giving you a reason. It's giving you a, a because, right? So in verse 9, he says, whether we're at home or away, we make it, to a- make it our aim to please God. Why? Because we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will reward us based on what we've done. It's similar to an Olympic figure skater saying, I make it my goal to please the judges for they will give me the score that determines my medal. The Olympic figure skater doesn't make it their goal to please their parents. Because their parents get no say in what medal they get. They don't make it their goal to please the fans, because they might cheer, but they don't give any say into what medal they get. The Olympic figure skater lives to please the judge, because they know the judge and the judge alone has the power to bestow the reward. In the same way, because we know that Jesus and Jesus alone will give us our rewards that will last for all eternity, it doesn't make any sense to live for anyone else than Him. So we make it our aim to please Him, whether home or away, for we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now the final good news in all of this is that it isn't hard to please Jesus. That's the really good news. It's not hard. Jesus is pleased when the Father is pleased. And God the Father isn't some Russian figure skating judge who is nitpicking and finding fault with every little thing you do wrong. You're never good enough for him. No, no, no. Our God is a loving Father. And he delights in every simple act of obedience that you give to him. He's a good father. You know, and good fathers, when their three-year-old child scribbles something on a piece of paper and gives it to him and says, Happy birthday, Daddy. Good fathers don't say, I've seen better stuff from your older siblings. They don't say, your proportions are all wrong, and I don't understand your choice to give me orange hair. They say, thank you, thank you. The father delights in the gift, and they give the kid a big hug, and they're pleased, they're pleased. That's what it's like to be judged by God. The bar is not high. You don't have to end world hunger to get his attention. He is pleased with every simple act of obedience you bring to him, even if it's just a scribble. If you bring it with the right heart, he is delighted. So in your note-taking outline, I've, I've given you just a selection of some verses that all say things that please God. To give you a picture, to show you how easy this really is. To do good things that will last and be rewarded forever. I'll just look at a couple of them. So Hebrews 11.6, this is important. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So what pleases God? Faith pleases God. You have to believe He exists. Do you believe God exists? Reward in heaven. Right? He's pleased with that. If you believe that he exists, if you believe he rewards those who seek him, if you have faith, God counts that as a good thing that will be rewarded for all eternity. Just believe he exists. 1 Timothy 5.4 5, 5, says, If a widow has children or grandchildren, 
Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In context, he's, he's giving instruction for how to care for the needy in the church. And he says, but, but first of all, yeah, churches should care for the widows, but first of all, their own family should care for them. Their kids, their grandkids should take care of them. This is pleasing in the sight of God. So when kids take care of their aging parents, when grandkids take care of their aging grandparents, this pleases God. Every time you call your grandparents and check in on them, God is pleased. That's eternal reward right there. When you take your parents to doctor's appointments, that's eternal reward. When you sacrifice to care for them, God is pleased. It's not rocket science, it's just basic decency, right? God is pleased with this stuff. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. God is pleased when you pray for your leaders. You don't have to fix the political system. You don't, God's not saying, hey, I'll reward you if you just completely overhaul Washington. No. God's like, I'll reward you if you pray for your leaders. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So in Philippians, Paul's in jail. He's been doing missionary work, and now he's in jail, and he can't provide for himself. And this church in, in, in Philippi sends money with a guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. And he shows up there, and he gives money to Paul to provide for his needs, and God is pleased. God is pleased when you give financially to help other people. God is pleased when you support missionaries in their work. God is pleased. That's eternal reward. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth, but use your treasures here on earth to store up treasure in heaven. Give, give, and translate your money, your perishable money, into eternal, lasting reward. And this goes on and on. We, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says, you'll be rewarded if you work hard at your job. Just do good work. Treasure in heaven. Colossians 3.20 says, God is pleased when children obey their parents. Hebrews 13.6 says, God is pleased when you share. 1 Peter 2.5 says, God is pleased when you worship him with other believers. It's not every example, but you get the idea. God is pleased when you offer your life to him with a simple act of obedience. He's not up in heaven finding fault with every little thing that you do, condemning you, telling you to try harder, do better. You're not good enough. No, every time you love, every time you pray, every time you do your job, God is pleased. And you will be rewarded for it. So make it your aim to please God in whatever you do. I'm going to end by just reminding you that this is real. This is really going to happen. If you're a Christian, when you die, you're going to stand before Jesus. And every word that you've ever said, every thought you've ever thought, every deed you've ever done will be evaluated by him. And he will separate them into two piles of good and bad. Now, he's not going to pay much attention to the bad pile. Your wicked deeds, your mind have been paid for, have been paid for by, by Jesus on the cross. They'll be burned up. They'll be thrown away. 
totally worthless. The pile he's going to pay attention to is the good pile, and you will be rewarded for all eternity based on how much you pleased him in this life with your obedience. So, make it your aim to please him. Don't waste your life pursuing things that will be totally worthless for eternity. Make it your aim to love God, to love other people, to do good, and you will be richly rewarded for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for the grace that is built into this. It's so asymmetrical. You forgive us for our bad deeds and you reward us for our good deeds. And even those very good things that we do are empowered by your spirit. Thank you for your grace. And I pray that your spirit would work through your word as you have in me this week, giving us fresh and new motivation to obey you, to do what is right, that our eyes would be focused on the prize. May we not fear the final judgment, but look forward to it with anticipation like Paul did. Finally, finally, we're going to see you and we're going to receive the return on our investment. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.